Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit Hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. Welcome to the BBC Good Food Podcast with me, Orlando Murray. In this episode, I'm talking to Michelle Roux in the extremely luxurious surroundings of Le Gavroche in London's Mayfair. Thank you very much, Michelle, for having us. Oh, it's a pleasure to, to have you here in the bar and in my lovely little enclave in Mayfair. It's very padded and velvet and tartan and uh, leather. It's a kind of gentleman's club feel, I think. Yeah, it has got that clubby kind of feeling to it. I like to refer it more as comfort and uh, and not the kind of restaurant where the noise is bouncing off the walls and the seats are uncomfortable and designed to make the guests move along quickly. <laughs> <laughs> now, one thing I'd like to clarify is, would you rather I called you Michelle or Chef? Because when we arrived a bit earlier, everyone said, oh, Chef, Chef's down there, Chef is nearly ready, and that sort of thing. I would love to call you Chef. Would you let me call you Chef? 100%. I've been called a lot worse, trust me. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, now, this restaurant has a very personal memory for me because it's one of the very first restaurants I ever came to. My father brought me here in mm. the 1970s wow. and he thought it was absolutely marvellous and the whole family thought it was marvellous. And uh, well, that was nine, that was about 1970 and I think it started in 1967 mm. and we're now in 2023 and there's a very sad news that you're closing. Yes, that's right. Uh, it's sad for us, but, uh, but not sad for you perhaps in yeah, every way. I, well, Yes, it, it, there's, a, there's obviously mixed emotions, very, very mixed emotions. Um, to, to, to be, oh gosh, just thinking about the fact that this is going to close kind of 
Yeah, it, it, I, I can't describe the emotions. There's sadness, but there's also happiness because I'm going to be having a few more nights off, which is great. My wife is obviously very happy because I'll be spending a bit more time at home. But it's... Oh, gosh, it's so hard to describe, Orlando. I mean, I, I've, I've had beautiful letters and emails and, and uh, you know, saying very much like yourself. I, I remember the first time I came to Gavroche back in such such a date and my, my father and parents brought me here and so on. And then other people saying, you know, we, we got engaged here and we've been coming here for our anniversary, you know, for the last 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. You know, it, it's... It, Le Gavroche means so much to so many people, and I've never taken that for granted. But since I announced the closure, it, it's it's been just an outpouring of, of, of love and joy. It's not too late to change your mind. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> and there wasn't a family member who wanted to take it on, because you are, of course, mm. a dynasty. You're, a, you're an actual dynasty. We may as well say that there was your father and your uncle, mm -hmm. and there's your brother... Anna. No, my, my cousin Anna. Your cousin Anna, of course, your cousin Anna. And your daughter is also in the business. That's right, yeah, daughter, son-in-law. But we can go further, uh, further back. I mean, my, my grandfather uh, on my father's side was a charcutier. So uh, he used to make um, uh, cold meats, cold cuts, work with pork. Uh, and on my mother's side, uh, there was uh, also... Uh, people that, um, family that ran restaurants or bistros. So yeah, I mean, it's in the genes. It goes a long, long way. And uh, But yeah, uh, referring back to your your question, my daughter uh, has her own restaurant with my son-in-law, Caractère, in Notting Hill here in London. And they, they, they felt that they were doing what they wanted to do, which is totally understandable. And uh, and so, you know, um, Le Gavroche will be closing its doors in January. Um, it's a decision that I haven't taken lightly, and it's a decision that I think is the right time, the right decision, and, and for the right reasons. What are the... There's some uh, clattering sounds about town, <laughs> and that is because we're in a real restaurant that's really being set up for evening service while we're in the, in the bar area of it. So don't worry if, if you hear clattering noises, listeners, because that's just real life. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Getting ready for dinner. Can you give me some idea of the stress that a restaurateur is under when he's running an establishment with two Michelin stars? Yeah, it, it, I mean, it is relentless. It's, uh, it, it's not just every day. It's not just every service. It's every plate of food. And it's, it, it's achieving that consistency. And not just the food, obviously. It has to be great service, great front of house, uh, great ambience. Uh, so all of that. And, and it, is, it is wearing it is incredibly uh, uh, difficult, and um, you know, I, I have, I have mentioned several times that I have had, you know, mental health issues. Nothing to send me to, to a specialist or hospital, but, but really, deep thoughts of why I'm doing this. How how can I put my my myself, my body, my mind through this. Uh, and it's painful. It's hard. It's the stresses of, of running a business. It's the stresses of uh, achieving that perfection or trying to achieve that perfection plate after plate after plate um, and and meeting everybody's expectations. And that's not that's not easy. And obviously the responsibility of, of Le Gavroche, um, which weighs very, very heavy on your shoulders. So it's... Um, it is tough, uh, and I've spent many, many sleepless nights having nightmares, terrible, terrible migraines. It's, yeah, it's been very, very difficult. But saying that, would I change anything? 
No, of course not. I, w- I would do it all over again in a heartbeat. And your wife isn't in the business. Was she ever in the business? So she was front of house, uh, a manageress. Um, and, uh, and and it's in the hospitality industry that happens a lot. We, we tend to um, tend to go out uh, with uh, fellow members of the team or that you're working at or, or people that understand what, it, what it's like to work in the hospitality industry. So, um, yeah. And so we went out together and got married ultimately. And uh, so she's been long suffering, uh, but she certainly understands what it is, um, what the industry is like. And will you have a good long holiday when the, <laughs> uh, in January after the restaurant closes? Um, be rather nice, wouldn't it? Some... It would be nice, but the problem is, Orlando, I've got so much to do, you know. I've got, I've got, I don't just run the restaurant. I've got so much other stuff on my plate. You're going to continue to do Le Gavroche activities, aren't you? Pop-ups and events yes, and... Yes, absolutely, yes. So, so the restaurant itself, the, the you know, 43 Upper Brook Street, will be closing. Um, but we, we intend uh, to take Le Gavroche on the road. So there'll be uh, pop-ups and there will be um, uh, residencies, and not just in the UK, but, but you know, worldwide as well. So, you know, it, I, it's, it's a closure, but we are carrying on. So Le Gavroche is still still be ticking over but but i won't have the uh i won't need to be coming in every night uh, and and working here um so so i'm, I'm basically taking back control of Lou gavroche uh, whereas Lou gavroche was taking control of me if that makes sense yeah i, I think chef you're entitled to that you've deserved it, uh, <laughs> earned that for yourself now your lovely new book michelle rue mm. at home that's a very nice uh kind of thought that now you're at home because it kind of marks a different chapter doesn't it tell me about that book and and why and and what mm, indeed it, it, it's um it's been a, a few years in the making in the pipeline and uh it's it's something that I've been wanting to do and showcase um, for, for uh, you know a few reasons. One one reason being that a lot of people think automatically that French food is fanciful, complicated, you know, 101 different ingredients, and you need to be highly skilled to to you know achieve French cooking, um, which is not the case. At its very heart, uh, French food and French cooking is is not that. It's it's ingredient-led, seasonality-led, and very, very similar to Italian uh, food. And then I also wanted to showcase what I eat at home, what I really do eat at home. And these dishes are what I cook at home. There's a chapter on sharing dishes, for example, and, and I love sharing dishes. I love to bring a big platter of food in the middle of the table, and then we all dive in and help each other. And I think that, you know, that just adds to what food really is all about. Food is about sharing, is about giving. Um, and, you know, that moment around the table with friends and family is really special. We asked you to think about your favourite dish and you suggested marinated grilled mackerel. Mm. And please say that to us in French, chef, because it sounds <laughs> gorgeous in French. <laughs> Filet de mackerel mariné et grillé. Lovely. <laughs> Were you brought up to speak uh, French and English equally in your household, incidentally? Ah, oh, that's a very good question. So I, I was born in England, but my parents had only just arrived in, uh, in the country. So my first language, even though I was born in England, was French because my parents didn't speak English at home. And uh, so when I, got to, when, when I went to primary school, 
I hardly spoke a word of English. Um, so, yeah, it, it's... But then I, I, the whole of my schooling was English schools. Uh, so I, I feel very, very much uh, English, um, but also undeniably French. Uh, and I'm totally bilingual. So, and, and we did the same, I say we did the same with, with my daughter. Um, when she was born, I always spoke to her in English and my wife always spoke to her in French. Uh, so again, she was totally bilingual. And now my grandson, my eldest grandson, um, likewise, we, we continue to speak in French and English to him. But my son-in-law is Italian and he only speaks Italian to him. So he understands, he's only, he's only three and a half, but he speaks English, but he fully understands French and can count to 20 in French and knows all the letters and, and understands what we're saying in French. And he absolutely 100% understands Italian as well, although he still doesn't want to say anything in Italian. But it, but it is incredible. I mean, what an advantage. So he's going to be trilingual, perhaps. Yep. Absolutely. It's incredibly unusual to be bil properly bilingual anyway, because mm. people normally have one in, in uh, preference. But I have to say, as you know, you don't have a French accent when you speak English. No, probably a bit of a, a London accent. Because if, I, if, <laughs> if anything, perhaps, yeah. But the mackerel dish, tell us about mm. this dish and why it's um, sim symbolic for you. Yeah, I love mackerel. Uh, in fact, I love all oily fish. So I love sardines as well and, and uh, things like that. But but this dish is, uh, I think it's in the chapter of uh, uh, quick uh, lunches and it really is quick. I mean, the, the mackerel fillets uh, are just marinated for a matter of uh, moments. I mean, you can leave them for an hour, but you, it, it literally just needs a quick wash in this marinade and then grilled. Uh, and a bit of salad, and you have got the most amazing quick lunch. And it's really good for you as well. I mean, mackerel, oily fish, delicious. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. So when you were growing up, how much proportion was there of home cooking? Because of the restaurants were always there. I'd mm, always imagine yeah. that you ate every night in the restaurant, but <laughs> but you, you can't eat every... You, you'd go mad, wouldn't you? Uh, yeah, mm, yeah. No, no, no. I, I was brought up on very much home cooking as well, similar to the, the what's in the book. Uh, no no fancy, you know, no, no truffles, no caviar, no lobster, nothing like that. It was just good, proper home cooking. And... Uh, yeah, and, and, you know, as a child, uh, I remember dad was growing his own vegetables and uh, had uh, animals as well that he reared for the table. You know, he, he had uh, chickens and rabbits and, and such like. So, yeah, it's... Gosh, he was ahead of his time there, because, wasn't yeah, yeah, he, uh, if he was growing for it's... his own, growing for the restaurant and for yeah, his yeah. I mean, I, I, as a child, uh, I very, very rarely... Uh, ventured into the restaurant um it was you know it was whoa dad's that's dad's workplace and you don't go there you know you know i, I might I, I remember as a child popping my head into the kitchen after school uh, mum would sometimes take us there and i'd get a little madeleine or a, you know some petit fours or some macaroons as a treat but but the, you know yeah sitting down to eat at luke avrosh as a child no dad would not allow that <laughs> <laughs> and 
Do you grow your own vegetables now? No, no, no. I, I live in a flat in London, so I don't have a garden. I've got a little, a little yard, but not, um, not, a, not a garden. But um, if I'm honest, I'm, I haven't got very green fingers. My, my wife definitely does enjoy uh, gardening, but it's not for me. Well, you might find that you, you get interested in it now, <laughs> mightn't you? <laughs> yeah, that's true. I'm, I'm going to have a little bit more time on my hands. It's a, a lovely thing to do. It uh, uses different parts of the mind, I find. Mm. So I'd recommend it if you hear my recommending things to the great <laughs> chef. But I think, I think you'd enjoy it. And if, if your father did it before you, then it's, I yeah. think you, you have got, you've got it in you, whether you like it or not. Yeah. Oh, I do. I mean, I do enjoy you know, visiting all of our suppliers. And that's, you know, that's key as well. That's, that's very, very important nowadays to, to know where all, all the food that you're cooking, where it comes from and who's, who's growing so it. So you travel, you've traveled around and seen mm. it growing. You had the most outstanding cheeses when we arrived. Yeah. There were the most amazing cheeses being nursed nursed for the for the cheese board. But yes. uh, do, do you, have you travelled around France um, choosing the right cheeses? Yes, absolutely. And and we have a, an affineur, so um, somebody that looks after the cheese and will take it to a maturity in the cave, uh, the uh, the cellars, uh, so that uh, when we get it, it is just ripened to perfection. But uh, but we now serve on the cheese board. Well. The cheese board has about, on average, I'd say 36 different cheese on there. But now nearly half of them are British, UK cheese. And um, you know, it, it is incredible, the quality and of cheese. And has that changed now. Oh, gosh, during yeah. your... Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, back in the day when my father was running the restaurant, the cheese board would maybe have a cheddar or two and Stilton, and that was about it. And now... I mean, like I said, about half of the cheese board is British. I mean, it is incredible. The, the quality of the cheese is, is, is shoulder to shoulder with some of the best of the French. And would that be true of other ingredients as well, other produce that, that you've transferred from France to mm, British yeah, grown? Abso- absolutely, leaps and bounds. Um, and and you know, I'm, I'm, I do genuinely believe that they were uh, pioneers back in the 60s and... They demanded great produce, the kind of produce that you could only find in France and Italy. And, you know, if they create that demand, or if you create that demand, then the suppliers, the growers, and the farmers will up their game and they will, you know, do better and better and better. And now there's some absolutely fantastic produce coming from the UK. And, you know, I, I remember as a kid growing up and the, and the produce in the UK was not great. I mean, 60s and 70s, the, the, it really wasn't. And back in the 60s, the quality of your vegetables, uh, the farmers would say, was, was, was size dependent. You know, if your leeks mm-hmm. measured, yes. <laughs> measured three kilos and were, you know, eight inches in, in circumference, they'd go, look at the quality of these leeks, they're beautiful. But you couldn't eat them because they're all woody in the middle. Yeah. And, the, and the courgettes were grown until they were the size of marrows. So, but, but now... Now that's, you know, the British farmers understand that. It's quality. It's the taste and the, the sweetness and the succulence of all the vegetables. Um, so it, it is fantastic. However, the UK is not sunny quite as much as the south of France. So we still do import um, some fruit and vegetables from France and Italy. Um, but uh, but it, it is less and less. They were probably different difficulties that your father and uncle faced mm. from the ones that you face. 
now nowadays. Almost certainly, um, they must have they must have had to establish supply chains to get the stuff here that they needed because mm. there, were, there was no no one else in 1967 who needed those things, was there? Absolutely. I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, a, a stroll down a supermarket. Well, supermarkets didn't exist in the 60s, but uh, your local grocer in down the aisles of the local grocer, and and yeah, and and then and then now. It's completely different. I mean, back in the 60s, olive oil, and you know, you, it was sold in the chemist to unblock your ears. And garlic. And, and, and garlic. garlic. Oh, that's very exotic. <laughs> very, very exotic. Oh, it's that foreign stuff. Ooh. But, you know, and, you know, without getting too political, it was before the common market, uh, which then became the EU. Um, and uh, you, it was nigh on impossible to import anything into uh, uh, into the UK, uh, f- food-wise anyway. So it, it, it was very, very difficult. Um, but they persevered and they, you know, they... They they really made it their their goal to make sure that uh, they got as enough top quality produce to be able to open a restaurant. And what's your favourite part of France? Um, gosh, I, I'd say Provence, the south of France. A lot of the recipes in the book are from Provence, and uh, my wife is from that region. And it's uh, it is such a beautiful part of the world. And uh, we live in a tiny little village, um, but it's 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 just magical. It's got you know two bakers. It's got a, a couple of bistros yeah and it's it's just lovely and and the we can hear the the church bells on the hour uh, even through the night it, it's just idyllic what is it about provencal cuisine which is just so life-affirming yes well i mean it's it's that mediterranean diet isn't it lots of olive oil lots of fresh fruit and fish and you you, you think it's making you making you healthy and <laughs> i think it probably is actually but but yeah, and, and lovely wine, rosé wine, when it's lovely and hot out there. It's funny how the wine doesn't... The, the rosé wine never tastes the same when you get it to <laughs> London. <laughs> it's um, a different pace of life down there as well, isn't it? Eh? Most definitely. I mean, I, I spent most of my life in London, and I, I consider myself a Londoner, and I love the city life. But um, I, I do enjoy when when i'm in my little tiny little village in provence uh and uh village life is uh is yeah it it is different it's it's it, it's at a different pace and will you be able to spend more time there i hope now yeah well i mean that is the aim as well to be able to uh spend a little bit more time in france in my house in france and uh hopefully take my uh, my two grandsons down there and uh uh, have some more fun with them. And improve their French. Yes. In, in, even further. <laughs> there are a few questions that we always like to ask our podcast <laughs> guests. So, let's start with this one. What is your most well-thumbed cookery book? Oh, my word. I have a huge collection of cookery books. Many, many hundreds. But I would say probably the most thumbed one um, and flicked through one would be an Escoffier. Uh, Auguste Escoffier, first published in uh, 1901 or 1902, not quite sure about the date, but um, and it's it's a great reference book, and it is still very valid now, and and it is a true inspiration. And a British book, if I can ask oh, well, you that. British, yes, actually, yes, British book. I, I, there's one that I am particularly fond of, and that is a, a Gary Rhodes book. Um, and um, I, I was a dear friend of Gary Rhodes, and he was the same age as me, and it's it, absolutely dreadful that he passed away. Yeah, that was, um, it was so sad, wasn't uh, it? Uh, yeah, I, I really did consider him as a close friend, and uh, 
uh, his his food, he revolutionized cooking here too. I mean, he delved into the great British classics. Fantastic job he did. He was the first person to to really sing about British food and and show what could be done with it. Absolutely, one hundred percent. So creative. One hundred percent. And and uh, I do look at his books very often, and I love his steam treacle steam pudding. It never fails to impress, and it always works perfectly. And he's got a recipe in that book as well for um, old-fashioned faggots, which are, which are lovely and in a deep, rich sauce. And yeah, it, it's just yeah, he he was a genius in yeah. his time, and he was such a perfectionist as well. <gasps> My was, word, yes, he, he ran that and a great movement. entertainer as well. Yeah, I mean, he's, do you remember his singing and dancing at the Good Food Show? He, he would was really brilliant. let his hair down. Well, he let his hair down. He of course had that amazing <laughs> hair that was his trademark, didn't he? Spiky. Yeah. Yeah, he was adored, wasn't he? Yeah. Um, now, what music do you listen to when you're cooking, if any? No, I don't uh, listen to any music uh, when I'm cooking. I, I tend to just uh, just get on with the cooking. And we don't have music in the, 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 the kitchen here at the Gavroche. And at home, very, very rarely. I may have the television on and in the background, the news channel or something. However, there is an exception when my daughter and son-in-law are at home they tend to put music on when they're cooking right um and uh i'll, I'll just listen to whatever she's put on and, and they sing along to it do they and hum yeah, along to it yeah. and jive as they yeah can. but but it's not for me I, I tend to just concentrate on work and the kitchen here at le gavroche is that a quiet place has that got a kind of laboratory yeah. atmosphere with the odd person calling out Yes, things. I mean, it, it is, you know, a relatively quiet kitchen. I mean, you you, you see these horror shows on, on television that, you know, shouting and screaming and swearing or whatever. But let's not forget that's that's television as well. You know, there's a little bit of dramatization there. But uh, no, a good, good well-run kitchen. Uh, it shouldn't be shouty, shouldn't be too sweary. And, that, you know, you just get on with your work. And and I always say, anyway, a, a shouting, angry chef is uh, is never going to be able to produce great food. You can always tell when a, there's a happy kitchen because the food tastes a lot better. Now, can you recommend a great cheap eats restaurant or a pub or a market somewhere that you know a kind of insider secret Ooh. of a good, good place where you can get a bit of nosh without ceremony or expense? Yes. Well, I, I've got a favourite place. Uh, I live in South London um, and uh, there's a restaurant called Trinity uh, in Clapham. Now, downstairs is the very plush uh, one Michelin star restaurant. However, if you go up to the first floor, the owner, Adam, he cooks just on his own. He's got a grill and a little stove and he cooks the ingredients that he's managed to buy on the day. So it's all ultra fresh. It's the catch of the day, the new season asparagus and so on and so forth. And it's just a tiny menu and you can just chat to the chef, chat to Adam and he just cooks a few dishes for you and it's just super relaxed and it won't cost you an arm and a leg and you can stay there all evening and just order an extra course and an extra course, a few more things to nibble on. It is the most wonderful, wonderful experience. What fun. And that's true hospitality, isn't it? Indeed. The, the very nature of hospitality. Now, something that's always in your fridge. Ooh, I was going to say butter. But then I'll say 
champagne. There's always a bottle of champagne in my fridge. Glad to hear it. I'll tell you what, this is like Desert Island Discs. You can have the butter and the champagne. <laughs> now we come to confessions. Oh. Your biggest cooking disaster. Should I really own up to this? <laughs> I, 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 honestly, I always, always think positive and will always look forward and never backward. So if I've made a mistake, I try and analyze it and then move forward. Blot it out. <laughs> Press the delete button. Um, it is difficult. It is very, very difficult. And uh, But um, th there was one particular instance I remember with, um, with my dad. Uh, I had invited him round for dinner uh, in my flat in London and I just had installed brand new stove, a, an induction stove, and I was still getting my head round it. And I made a navarandagnol, so slow cooked lamb stew. And I just put it on, I thought on simmer on the stove to warm up whilst we were having a glass of champagne. <laughs> and, um, yeah, about 10 minutes later, the uh, smoke alarm went off and uh, I ran back into the kitchen and you couldn't see. Oh. It. I mean, it was it was just totally, totally ruined. Completely, completely ruined. Burnt to a cinder. I think you put it on to boost. You put I, the had, I put to it boost, on to boost. You? And, <laughs> <laughs> and he, he never, ever, you know, let me forget that. Every time, uh, you know, I invited him around, he says, I hope it's not Navarin again. Uh, and uh, yes, uh, yeah, but uh, yes. Uh, but thankfully, we had a lot of cheese in the fridge. So we had cheese. And, and more champagne. Uh, and course. more champagne, yeah. yes. Um, food you've never tried. Oh, gosh, I, I've tried some weird and wonderful things throughout my life. And, um, uh, you know, I will always uh, always try different food. I think I think that's the joy of traveling as well. But, um, gosh, I, I can't can't think of one. I, I, yeah. Well, if you've never tried it, of course, maybe it's just well, it's still waiting out there for you, isn't it? And maybe now you'll have the opportunity to yeah. travel more and discover something that you didn't even know existed. Yeah, indeed. And, and I think that that is, you know, that is the beauty of food. I mean, we still get guests here who will order the cheese souffle, the souffle suissesse, and say, this is the first time I'm actually ordering a souffle. I've never tried one before. So even what seems banal and normal to me as cheese souffle is not for other people. Mm. And finally, a guilty pleasure. Oh, you see, I don't get that. How could you be guilty if it's a pleasure? <laughs> um, gosh. Well, people are embarrassed about something that they feel that they're yeah. letting the side down by. I've never been into confectionery, or shall I say cheap confectionery. Um, I, I just don't like it. They're too sweet, and I, I don't don't like it. But I am very partial to chocolate. I love chocolate, and um, but it has to be good chocolate. So I'm a bit of a bit of a snob when it comes to chocolate. So do you have a, a bar of of very fine Indeed, single estate single chocolate estate in the fridge like or in the cupboard? So I keep my chocolate in the fridge. I know I shouldn't really keep it in the fridge, but. Uh, and I'm, but I'm very wary that it should never be consumed fridge cold. So I take it out um, of the fridge and just let it warm up. A premeditated guilty pleasure. Yes, <laughs> indeed. It's not just a mad, quick, manic rush to the you know chocolate. No. And I bet you enjoy that chocolate and oh, savor it for the excellent thing that it is. And then, really, last of all, what makes you optimistic for the future at this turning mm. point in your career? That's a simple answer. I mean, I, I absolutely love training and being a mentor to the next generation of chefs. And um, uh, what keeps me going here is, is 
walking into my kitchen and front of house actually and seeing these youngsters, uh, you know, 18, 20 year old, just starting off in their career in the hospitality industry and to see their eyes light up when they've learnt something new or, you know, and, and or when they've tasted something new or when they've been cooking something new or when they've, you know, a sommelier and he's, he's just pulling out the bottle of an, pulling out the cork of an expensive bottle and, and pouring it for a guest. All of that gives me hope for the future and, and just really makes me very happy. And it makes me feel optimistic as well. Mm. Thank you very much for the most charming podcast I think I've ever done, Chef. Thank and you. may I wish you every success and joy and happiness in the future. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the BBC Good Food Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Now, don't forget to tune in to the bonus recipe episode coming out on Thursday, which will be grilled marinated mackerel. And be sure to click follow so you never miss an episode. <laughs>